Welcome to Movement is My Constant. This is the podcast for breaking stagnation patterns. Through interviews with movement researchers, I seek inspiration in their experience and encourage you to stay curious, to explore movement with awareness, knowing that the body contains the intelligence to make decisions and communicate with grace. Enjoy this space. My name is Anna and I'm your host today. I think once people really start to cultivate a habit of noticing how they are feeling, then that's quite powerful. I think that's quite habit forming. For this episode, I am joined by Lucy Griffith. Lucy has more than 20 years experience in corporate well-being and formed Thrive at Work in 2014. Her work combines the experience she's gained in the corporate world with diverse practical techniques she's learned in her past work as dancer, fitness trainer, yoga teacher, and wellness coach. Lucy is on a mission to make work more human, more enjoyable, more physical, and more productive. She runs Thrive at Work, facilitating the workshops and programs for companies that are looking for sustainable solutions to help their people improve their health, happiness, and performance at work. The strategies offered help them work in step with their human nature rather than against it, including active experimentation with movement-based exercises. Enjoy this episode. Lucy, welcome to Movement is My Constant. Thank you, Anna. It's very nice of you to have me. Yeah. So I'm going to jump right in. You as a coach, facilitator, consultant, speaker and a movement researcher, as I like to call it, how do you help your businesses to create a healthy, sustainable, and positive culture at work? Uh That's a big question. Well, I like to think of it as offering them ways to make work a bit more human. And in doing so, it helps companies to allow people to work to their best potential. So it's a kind of a win-win situation because by allowing people to work in tune with their human nature, (laughs) by acknowledging that they're humans and they've evolved to work effectively in a certain way, working with that rather than against that, which I think many companies tend to do, unfortunately, it allows people to really thrive in their work. So they feel much more happy and healthy and engaged. So they have a much better work day experience. And because of that, they're then going to be producing much higher quality work, much better ideas, much more innovation and creativity. So it's like helping companies to benefit from that win-win situation. So give people a better workday experience and also benefit from that. So I don't know whether you want to know about my methods or how that works, but that's kind of the philosophy behind the work. Okay. I think we'll probably get there a little bit. But I really like that you were talking about the human nature. And I would love for you to explore that part, that dimension. I even made a note here, the human nature or the human dimension. And you touch a lot about the relationship between mind and body. So perhaps we can start from there. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be that we, you know, in the corporate world, have got further and further away as the way I see it from the fact that we are all humans, (laughs) that disengagement is at all time high. We've got a terrible amount of stress, you know, burnout is on the rise. And I think these are symptoms 
the fact that we've kind of lost the plot a little bit about you know what motivates us as humans what allows us to work effectively we tend to have a focus on output on productivity we've got this kind of obsession i think with increasing output there's often a quite misguided way i think that companies go about trying to improve that output we tend to get people being treated not as human beings it's more as sort of the, the way we would approach output when we expect a machine to produce work so there's kind of a turning up of the dial, expecting people to produce more and more without looking at the quality of the work and the sustainability of the work. So I think if we get back to what we fundamentally need as human beings, which is actually not that complicated you know, when we look at it and remember those basic needs, then we can kind of reinvent the way we work in a way that you know, makes it much more enjoyable, much more sustainable, and actually does produce the stuff that makes people money. So everyone wins. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's just a basic assumptions that I think are, are made, which are actually quite flawed. We tend to think in terms of when we're looking to improve productivity at work, quite often the predominant myth is that it's like a seesaw. So you place health and well-being needs of the people on one end of the seesaw, and then the productivity, the output requirements that, you know, the company wants to produce on the other end of the seesaw. And there's this kind of idea that somehow, you know, when one goes up, the other one goes down, you know, one goes against the other. And in actual fact, you know, I see that as a complete myth. When we look at productivity, it's not always more is more. If we're driving people harder to work longer hours to take away their rest and recovery, then it may in the short term drive productivity. You know, if you kind of give people a feeling of threat in the short term, they will work harder. But then we create this very unsustainable model where people can't continue to work at that pace. And even if they can, the quality of their work goes down. So I think a lot of companies say that they're really interested in investing in the health and well-being of people. But I think there's this kind of underlying fear beneath that that says, well, if we do too much, if we really take it seriously, if we really listen to our people, if we really give them what they need, they're somehow going to be weak. They're going to be demanding. You know, they're going to spend their whole day meditating rather than actually getting the job done. Mm -hmm. But I think this is a myth that needs to be busted right. in the corporate world. And, you know, when we look at the science, you know, behind productivity, it's simply not true. It's just something that we've carried forward from the status quo of what's come in the past. It's an echo of the industrial revolution. And it's not appropriate to thought workers, you know, people that have to be creative and innovative. Yeah. You know, if we're not paying attention to what we need, our basic kind of drivers and needs, then, you know, we miss this whole richness of creativity and innovation and brilliant ideas and problem solving. Yeah. So would you say that productivity is kind of needs a little bit of a reframing or should it really be completely obsolete altogether? Do we need to find new metrics? How do we find that balance between, you know, what the companies want and to grow and thrive? So what are the new metrics of growth and thrive in relationship to productivity? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I don't think we need to completely change everything that we're doing, but I think what is missing in the corporate world is quite often the time to reflect because of the speed that we all operate at. That's become the norm that we're constantly flying ahead at thousand miles an hour in order to keep up with the competition in pace with the technological changes. I think what we've done is basically edited out time to stop and notice what's working and what isn't working. 
And unfortunately, it's that space that is required, that reflection that is required in order for people to realise that they're actually possibly on the wrong trajectory. So, you know, I think this is what I try to do in my work is give people a pause for stopping and going, right, okay, is this working for me? Noticing what the impact is of the current situation, you know, noticing mentally, but also physically and getting people to then reflect on what they need in order to change track. So it's kind of an enforced stop in the day that just doesn't seem to be available when you know, we have our standard workday programs where we're busy with kind of getting stuff done and getting the job done. I think in terms of a new metric, yeah, I mean, I'm very much a fan of not monitoring productivity, you know, hours spent in chair, licking mouse. <laughs> I think what we need to be measuring is engagement in terms of the churn of people moving through because they're not satisfied. We need to obviously be looking at burnout statistics and asking more questions of people. So really looking at the experience above what they produce as a way of kind of nurturing, you know, it's like uh, we have to invest in the soil in which we plant yeah. the seeds of the work okay. rather than looking at the end product of what we produce in the greenhouse. Yeah, exactly. And thinking a bit longer term, thinking over like what's going to happen in five years, 10 years, rather than in the very short term, like yeah. figures on the spreadsheet on a day to day basis. Yeah. And that changes a lot. I mean, I remember some years ago I was freelancing and I remember noticing how people were just delivering and were trying to find some results and just doing and doing. And I remember looking and realizing, oh my God, nobody's actually taking the step back to have the wider perspective over things and reflect a little bit. And I remember at the time talking about it with some colleagues and uh, we were noticing that there's no time for pause. There's no time to reflect, to think, to analyze. And it feels like because of this culture of, like you said, productivity, the quantitative achievements, everything needs to be measured and analyzed. And we are geared to success and we don't understand how we could fail, how this failure, quote unquote, I don't think it's the best word, but how can we pivot? What can we learn from, you know, falling on the ground? And then how do we stand back up again? So in your suggestion is really about how could we be more present in this corporate world with the qualitative experiences, right? And I really love that you were saying something about remembering, like you are trying to somehow nurture this space for remembering that even if people do this are with you, maybe, I don't know, you will have to explain a little bit about your method, but they are with you for a little bit of time. How do they then bring this remembrance of their core needs into their work, right? So maybe if you want to talk a little bit about how you help people remember that space. Yeah, I think one of the core exercises I do with people is really to tune in to the way that they feel, which I think is something that is so incredibly rare in the workday. I think once people really start to cultivate a habit of noticing how they are feeling, then that's quite powerful. I think that's quite habit forming. So simply the act of just stopping and working out what those sensations are, what is going on, a kind of a quick stock check. I think that is kind of the door to open 
it opens a door into that more reflective way of working. You know, I think it doesn't have to necessarily be this kind of very long, complicated ritual that you have in your workday. You don't have to sort of sit and meditate for half an hour before you start work. I think it's just those kind of micro moments throughout the day that say, hey, I'm a human being. (laughs) I'm working here in the present moment as a human being. What is going to help me to feel better and work better? I'm not sure whether that's answered your question. Maybe you can ask it again, because I think I might have slightly gone around the edge of your question there. <laughs> no, I think it's good. I mean, you are pointing into the direction of how do we tune into those basic needs, right? How do we make sure that people will remember that coming back to their need, to their, hey, I'm a human being, like you were just saying, I think that's more the idea, like how in your method do you make sure, so to speak, or do you invite people to come back into those needs, right? How do they not forget, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated by behavioral change. That's something I kind of geek out a little Mm -hmm. bit about reading about behavioral change psychology. And, you know, I've studied a little bit about habit building and habit change. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the major challenges. And I think it's often a shortfall when wellbeing practitioners come in and they've got this kind of like educational mission. It's like, all you have to do is point out to people that they're not doing the thing that they need to do in order to remain healthy. And it seems very simple. And yet people may be inspired by that message and they go, yeah, that's a great method. You know, I want to do that. From now on, I'm going to be a more aware human being at work. I'm going to meet my needs. And then unfortunately, the moment the session's over, you know, you might do it once or twice and then you get swept along with the tide of busyness and the, you know, the routine, the groove that you've already created in your working life. And I think one of the challenges of this kind of work is to make sure that actually action is taken and not just once, but on a regular basis that we create rituals and habits within the working day that are workable and they're real world (laughs) solutions. They're not just completely unrealistic considering the amount of stuff that people have to do. You know, I think the one thing we really don't need any more of is stuff for our to-do list. So a lot of my work is trying to solve that problem is just to raise awareness, it's to get people to reflect, it's to create that space for people to really kind of confront what they need, but also to help them build habits that are realistic that they can then allow that behavior to stick to make those changes that they want to make in the working day i work a lot with hooking small behaviors onto existing routines mm-hmm. so for example we've got certain things in our everyday life that we do automatically they're existing habits we don't have to discipline ourselves to do them you know we've all got to leave our desks and go to the bathroom we all make the cup of tea or yeah. some of us may eat lunch those kind of things that so we can start to hook new behaviors small manageable new behaviors onto those existing routines so for example for me when I take a comfort break I leave to go to the bathroom when I come back before I touch my keyboard you know when you just kind of disappear down that rabbit hole of productivity and all the stuff that needs to be done I stop and take a few moments you know just up to a minute just to tune in to notice what's going on you know if I've lost the plot this is the time where I kind of get myself back on track So it's creating those kind of small manageable rituals and working out how you can make them hook into the life and sort of stick there. So that's one example of the kind of work I would do. If I was talking about, you know, physical intelligence, for example, Mm -hmm. that's one of the practical exercises that I might suggest that people do coming out of that session. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting that you were touching upon the 
habit change. So you were saying that in order to change a habit, in order to change something, we have to start very small. Like the example you gave, it's just a one minute, for instance, of coming to the place where you are, you know, having your work when you're starting that sort of mental work and activity and focus. But there's much more to it, right? There's a lot of like, I arrive to this place and I have to devote myself to it in order to know that I will benefit from it. So there's a lot about this change in our habits that actually comprises of motivation, dedication, So where does that even start, right? How do you bring people into that motivation? It feels like it's even a step before creating the habit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people have to have very clear reasons why they'd want to Mm -hmm. cultivate that habit in the first place. I think there needs to be intrinsic motivation. I mean, I think this is one of the things I work with, looking at motivation with companies, because, you know, just telling someone they should... doesn't actually change people's behavior. You know, people know what they should be doing. We all know what we should be doing. You know, ideally, we'd all have a very balanced work life. We wouldn't allow ourselves to become stressed. We'd all take regular breaks. We'd take a nice walk around the park every day. But that doesn't actually make people change. I mean, I think this is where, you know, to a certain extent, that reflection helps to motivate people because I think quite often we shut out how we feel. So we don't actually recognize the need anymore. Mm. We don't notice we're tired. I mean, I, I quite often when I do self-reflective exercises where I get people to sort of tune into how they feel, I might do a physical exercise in a workshop. And then afterwards I'll say, well, how do you feel? And it might be an energizing exercise, might be something that's really encouraged to kind of, supposed to encourage your energy to go up. Yeah. And then people say, I'm just tired. I'm so tired. And I said, well, you know, it's not the exercise that made you tired. You've been tired the whole morning, probably. Uh, You know, maybe you've been tired the whole week. And you haven't possibly noticed it has been pushed into the background because you're busy being productive and getting the job done. And I think the only way we actually start to want to change is when we actually look at something in the face and say, okay, Let's be honest with myself. This is how I feel. And that can be put off for weeks, months, years. And I think this is when when burnout occurs in a lot of people, when they fail to notice how they feel anymore. So, yeah, it's kind of allowing the body to give you that call to action to then take steps to do something about it. You know, okay, I'm tired. All right, now what do I need to do to feel less tired tomorrow? You know, it sounds obvious. It sounds like, you know, this is such a fundamental human thing that we do. We feel and then we take action to solve it. But somehow we've kind of, in our busyness, removed that process from our day. Yeah. Yeah, it's true because we're just living in a a lot of the mental space, right? And also it seems like there's some sort of a relationship between where we have our eyes, our gaze. So we are talking obviously about corporations and work environments that work a lot with technology and use the computer to work. So a lot of desk, office and it feels like where our eyes and gaze, a whole body is, right? And I was also recently listening to the Huberman podcast. You probably know of him. And he talks a lot about this narrow view versus the wider view and how can we create more of the wider view. And I believe that movement does create a wider view, like stepping back, really moving your body to create a little bit more perspective in the space where you are. So we do tend to work with our eyes and body and mind towards the computer Mm. and we need a little bit more of space, right? So 
I don't know, maybe you want to talk a little bit about how do you engage with the body? Because I feel there's something there about how do you tap into those basic needs you were talking about earlier? And then how do you introduce the body as a added tool, so to speak, for the quality of our work and the quality of our day-to-day life? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think using the body in a corporate setting, you know, people are quite surprised when I say, can you now just stand up out of your chair? And it's like, oh, do we do this at work? But I think it's really, it's just the missing element of all training that we have kind of disregarded the fact that we learn not just with our heads, but also with our bodies. So yeah, I try to, whatever topic I'm working on with a group of people, I try to include some kind of physical exercise. And I don't mean, you know, like extreme, you know, we don't go out, you know, for a sprint or uh, do burpees under the desk or push-ups or anything like that. I mean, it's it's, it's a different... That will be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I'll leave that to the boot camp teachers. (laughs) No, it's very simple. It's sort of everyday human movement that, you know, anyone can do regardless of how fit you are. And But I think it's very interesting how we've somehow eliminated movement out of the learning process. I mean, it's something that comes very intuitive to me to learn on my feet or if I need to solve a problem to get up and move around and go out for a walk or, you know, shake out or do a bit of yoga or whatever it does to get that idea out of my head. But I think I'm kind of fortunate I've come from a whole background of very movement-based work. So my work has movement intrinsically built into it. You know, I was a dancer. I was a fitness instructor, yoga teacher, wellness coach. All this stuff very much has movement baked in. And I think it's something that we do intuitively as children. to move around in order to learn about the world and get our brains working effectively but we lose that and then we get into a job which requires us to sit statically staring at a screen for many hours a day and we forget that we've got that tool at our disposal so that's the reason why I'm trying to introduce it and I think if I tell people that they're going to be moving for some people that is the horrific suggestion (laughs) but I think once people experience it they realize that it's actually quite powerful and not too scary at all. Sometimes I have to introduce it sort of by stealth. Yeah. So we're just going to do a reflective exercise and then they find themselves moving. (laughs) But yeah, I talk a lot about the moving body in terms of a creativity Mm -hmm. tool. Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating that the new science says, for example, if we are walking forwards, Mm -hmm. we tend to think about things that are going to happen in the future. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it allows us to then have that kind of like, where am I going? What do I need to do? You know, what will happen in a year's time kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. likewise, if we walk backwards. Okay. (laughs) Naturally, our brain starts to reflect on the past. Okay. I mean, it's scientifically proven that if we take a problem out for a walk, Yes. You know, we're designed, we evolved as human beings to think on our feet. And we need that element of physical movement in order to come up with a complete thought process, you know, to deal with stress. We evolved as human beings to have a physical response to a threat. You know, we wanted to run away or fight back. And because we try to solve our problems sitting, staring at the screen, we somehow cannot complete the stress loop that gets us back out of that fight or flight into that rest and digest mode. So kind of I introduce these concepts to people and say, you know, you're human. This is how we evolved to be. This is how we evolved to be brilliant and creative and innovative. You know, like Charles Darwin, he was doing a lot of thinking work and he built a path 
yeah. to walk up and down oh, to solve all yeah. the problems. He had a path outside his house and he would just spend hours walking up and down this path in order to get his brain into a gear where he could solve problems. And I think this is something that we're eliminating movement out of our day and it's causing us to become slightly less brilliant than we could be. Yeah. And extremely stagnant, I think. Like our energy is extremely stagnant and limited. Yeah, it feels like we need to kind of reinvent a little bit of the spaces where we are in to have more movement. But I was now curious a little bit about your background, indeed, if you can just tell what brought you here and also frame it. If I am correct, you've been doing this for maybe some 20 years or so. How has it changed? You know, how has your methods changed or also how have people welcomed differently throughout time? I'm sure you've seen a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the kind of work I'm doing now and the kind of work I'd like to move into more in the future, I think is very much the kind of some product of lots of different experiences and, you know, professional and personal experiences I've had throughout my life. I've always been in movement based work. So when I was a kid, I was very much into gymnastics, sports acrobatics, and then I really got into the world of dance, uh, ended up studying modern dance. I think I was always fascinated by not kind of the aesthetics of the movement. I mean, I think I was for a while. I think when I first started to dance, it was about a way of, you know, showing off on the stage. But when I look back, I don't think I realized at the time, but I, I was very much fascinated by more the role that movement plays in our lives. So I think when I was doing my degree in dance, I did various projects. I did a project about how the physical response to stress affects the way we behave. Yeah. And I did my dissertation on is dance for an audience or is it about a process of creation? And you know, mm. how much is it for other people and how much is it about ourselves as humans meeting our own needs? Yeah. So I think that's something that I've always been really fascinated by, not even consciously, I think. So I think I've naturally been drawn to work that uses the body in a kind of a functional way to help us be better human beings. So yeah, I studied a degree in modern dance at London Contemporary Dance School. And I did a little bit of performing, but I very quickly moved into education and working with college students, university students and community groups, teaching dance, performing arts sort of stuff. And then I think part of that work and um, when I was teaching, we had to, as part of, uh, for example, the A-level dance syllabus that I was teaching, we had to teach human anatomy and physiology. <laughs> I mean, it was quite low level, but, um, you know, it was something I didn't really have a, that much knowledge in. So I started sort of studying anatomy and physiology in order to pass this information on to the students, bit of a rookie, and just got really, really fascinated by, we're dancers, but this is our tool. This is our instrument. You know, how does it work. So I got very much into that, the physical side of things. And then as a result of that thought, you know what, I'd love to be able to train people to use their bodies better, more efficiently, get fit, feel better, you know, more energetic. So I ended up in the personal training world. I started to train as a personal trainer. Um, and that's how I got into the world of fitness. And for many years, I was motivated to get people physically fit. I guess I was quite young and naive at that time. And I thought if you just sort of got enthusiastic enough and told people the importance of health and, you know, that they would just kind of all suddenly miraculously become healthy and follow my lead and get all the benefits I was getting, start running around the park every day. And over the years started to work out that actually it's not as simple as that, that, that psychology is a huge piece 
of the puzzle to solve when you want behavior real change. And I, I noticed because I was working in a corporate gym managing a fitness facility for a company. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that I was seeing the same people every day. <laughs> I would go into the restaurant and, uh, you know, the the people in the corner eating pizza and drinking Coke, you know, they weren't the ones coming to the gym. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought, you know, these are the people that I need to be working with. I'm actually working with the people that already don't need me. And, you know, what is it that makes someone want to come to the gym and prevents them from doing so? So I started looking at the barriers, started looking at the problem of, you know, why we don't necessarily look after ourselves, even though, we know it's what we need in order to feel better. So I think that was kind of a big learning curve in in that period of my life. And I worked in this fitness space for a long time, but I gradually tried to make it more holistic, you know, started to look at, you know, not just kind of like, can you do a chest press (laughs) and a bicep curl? Yes. Started to look at why are we all so tired? I started to look into nutrition more with people. I started a walking group. It was more about like bringing people together socially and all sorts of different elements to kind of be a little bit more holistic about helping people to feel better at work. Um, And eventually I thought, well, you know, I've got so many different tools at my disposal now that I want to then channel that into my own company. So I took all the elements that I really enjoyed working in that job and then said, right, I'm going to offer this to other companies. So focusing on companies that employ largely thought-based workers and ended up sort of putting together workshops to to deliver for companies. And I think, how have things changed? I mean, I've obviously evolved and matured. And now I think my biggest realization is that you can't just work with employees and expect the situation to change. You have to work with companies. So if employees are working within a company that doesn't provide them with the culture and the environment and the conditions in which they can make healthy choices, then it doesn't matter what they do. Yeah, It's not going to work. I think there's too much responsibility put at the feet of employees alone for taking action, changing, looking after themselves. I think a lot of companies say, oh, well, we've got a stress problem. We've got a burnout problem. So we need to then bring in a well-being professional. You know, we need to come up with initiatives to help people cope with that, to become more resilient, to become more stress-proof. And yet the root of the problem is within the culture of the company. It might be that there's a toxic management issue going on, or yeah. you know, people are, are saying that they're interested in giving people time off and work-life balance and all that sort of stuff. But actually, in reality, that's not the behavior that is actually happening. So now I try to look more to the wider culture and put the work that the employees are expected to do in context of the company culture and try and work with leaders and and managers and teams to ensure that everyone's singing to the same song sheet. Now, I don't know the expression, but everyone's working (laughs) in in the same direction. And they're the same. Yeah, because it's so frustrating. I think if your company says, you know, you need to manage stress better when they're the ones that are creating. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you were talking about the experience throughout your years of experience and what has changed a little bit. And how do you change the corporate when sometimes corporates come with this idea of well, we have to change our employees and they have to change their ways. They need to be less stress and less burnout because, again, we go back into the quantifying the metrics. But actually, it starts with the leaders, right? It starts with the top. They also need to be involved. So how do you convince 
or how do you engage or invite them that they also need to be involved? Yeah, and that's one of the most challenging aspects of my work. You know, I think it's very easy for me to sell the concept of becoming in and working with employees on the ground level. And it's much harder to convince more senior members, you know, the the C-suite to get involved in this process, because I think largely it's a time issue that people feel as though they cannot spare the time because their time is somehow too important. Again, I think it's that mindset where well-being is seen as this thing that's on the other side of the seesaw to productivity. And it's that myth that seems to persist that stops people from prioritising getting involved in these kind of um, activities in the first place. So I think what I have to do is have to point out that logic to them in order to try to um, change that mindset so that they are then open to investing the time and seeing the value in investing the time and that it's not just this kind of nice perk process that makes everyone feel nice, but it doesn't really get the job done. It's actually, you know, the foundation of what you need to build. If you do want productivity, if you do want people that are doing this brilliant thinking work, it's really difficult for me when I pitch things to try to get that message across because quite often I'm pitching to the people that really believe this stuff. You know, I pitch to learning and development or HR who understand this because they're dealing with the problems, the direct impact of it on a day-to-day basis. So they really get this stuff. They go, yes, I see the value, but it's harder to then go one level up. You know, I don't get that direct dialogue with those people. But in my experience, when I do get the senior leaders in the room, the impact of the work is so much more sustainable. It's so much more valuable because you're not then working against the current of the company. The stream is going in the same direction for everyone. Of course. We tend to think it's the leaders saying, oh, well, you know, the people on the ground are all stressed and they're all, you know, they're not resilient enough and they're all having these problems and I wish they just pull themselves together and sort it out. But I think that's actually not true. I think more and more it's the senior leaders that are really suffering from the problems in the world of work, the stress levels, being expected to produce more than is realistic. And I think they are suffering. And I think it's terrible that this is happening, but I think the more and more senior leaders are being honest about that problem and experiencing it themselves, then um, it does open the door to changes being made for the better. You know, I think this, this, the kind of work that I do is so universal to all humans. It doesn't matter what seniority you are, uh, what age you are, what gender you are, you know, it's kind of relevant. It's these basic fundamental things that we all have to deal with, you know, like how do we deal with stress? You know, like what's our physical response to stress, our mental response to stress? You know, how do we operate under threat? You know, how do we communicate in a way that is effective, that removes the risk and allows us to open our minds and solve problems? How much movement do I need to do in a day in order to be at my most brilliant? You know, they're so universal that the moment you get senior managers involved, you know, it's just as relevant to them than the people that they manage. I think once they've opened themselves to that, then great things can really happen. But yeah, it's very hard to get my foot in the door there and get that work done. Yeah. Big challenge. Yeah, exactly. I can imagine. And you've pointed out very interesting things around what you were just saying. What stood out for me, maybe because I'm also with my mindfulness teaching, with my experience, you were pointing to something very important, which is this sense of suffering when people are not even aware 
And we are always following this sort of culture of the status quo, of, you know, achievement, competition, perhaps, but we do not understand. And, you know, maybe leaders for them, they think, no, this is how I operate in this world. This is how I should be. And then this kind of makes us blind towards this suffering. We don't sometimes even see that there is suffering, there is uh, pain, there is illness. We're not making the best for us. And that is very difficult to sometimes show. It feels like sometimes we have to put people in certain uncomfortable places, like perhaps when you invite them to movement, they will be uncomfortable, but then they realize something, they discover something about themselves. And I think that's a very interesting part of the whole process of self-discovery and maybe changing a little bit this idea of the status quo. And another thing that stood out for me was the energy management. I feel like when we talk about movement, we sometimes either see movement as, you know what, I'm just going to go to the gym. I'm just going to release everything and spend it all out. And we don't know how to apply movement in order to give us energy, in order not to spend the whole energy we have. How can movement indeed help us? manage the energy for them to do other things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, you know, it all comes back to that self-awareness, that reflective place where we give ourselves enough time to actually stop and think, well, what do I need at this given moment? Rather than just go through with the plan that you always do, you know, I think you are a depleted, stressed, overworked, overstrained individual. And then, you know, you're going to the gym for an extreme workout in order to solve that problem, you know, that's not always the best course of action, even though it's, you know, it's a fundamentally healthy thing to do, of course, is to exercise. Yeah. But I think that's kind of almost parallel to the way we treat our working lives, you know, that that's the mindset is like, well, the more I do, the better the solution, the harder I push, you know, the more I manage to achieve then that is going to mean more reward, more benefit, more value. And I think that's the way we approach our working life is that without that reflection to say, actually, today, what I actually need is a rest in order to be productive in the long term. That's what we do to ourselves at work. We have the equivalent of a killer workout, regardless of whether that's what we actually need. So, yeah, I think we just need a better understanding of what productivity looks like. Mm-hmm. And look to the science, you know, I think it amazes me how there's so much data out there about, you know, how rest is actually a valuable productivity asset and all these kind of things. And, you know, to look at the figures, because I think we just operate on this assumption that what we're doing is working, but we ignore the scientific, the, you know, the good quality scientific research that actually says, yeah, that's not quite true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And pointing towards the rest also In the same ways we need to reframe productivity, in the same ways we need to reframe rest, as in rest is not just about taking holidays or it's not just about going to sleep. There's so many small things that can tune into the rest factors, to the rest benefits of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's an interesting time in history in the corporate world. I think, you know, coming out of COVID, the kind of, I won't call it a war, but the big debate going on about how much flexibility and autonomy we offer people. You know, there's a call very much from the employee point of view to say, look, we can be productive in different settings. You know, we're all very different. We're all very unique. What motivates one of us doesn't necessarily motivate others. Some of us thrive in an office environment. Some of us thrive at home. Some of us thrive with a mixture of the two. 
there's a move by many, many management teams to say, no, we want to see you back in the office. We want to see you productive. We want to witness that. We want to monitor it. We want, you know, we want to reestablish that sense of control that we always had by seeing you in front of us, working in a way that makes sense to us. So I think this idea of rest is kind of all uh, wrapped up in this kind of debate where, in my opinion, we need to move into a new era where we give people the acknowledgement that, you know, we are all different and rest to one person looks very different from rest to another person. And from a day-to-day basis, I mean, for me personally, rest might look like a full-on workout at the gym where I come out sweaty and exhausted, but I feel great. We're not exhausted, but I feel that that's exactly what I need in order to get fired up and do my best work. Um, And on other days, I just need to go back to bed. Mm -hmm. But I think what we tend to do as human beings is to assume that what's always worked for us will work for everyone else. So it's giving people a little bit of space to really reflect on it and and to notice. And I think when you do that for yourself, then you're more likely to be a bit more empathetic, compassionate with other people. But, you know, maybe that's naive of me to think that's what happens. But, you know, that's the approach I take. Yeah, sounds healthy. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds very healthy and it's kind of in the direction of what I was going to now ask you about, you know, what was for you the future of this work and the future of the next steps? Or how would you see applying this message of, you know, we need to cater for a more individualistic Though collective, in a collective form, there needs to be an understanding of individual needs as well and cater for that. So how is your future projects or your future work or what is your direction, perhaps, if you want to share something about it? Yeah, I mean, I'm now trying to develop more complete programs for companies that look more to the bigger picture. So to look at the culture of the company and how well-being sits within the culture of the company, rather than going in and just doing discrete workshops that are based very much, you know, the more traditional, well, I say the more traditional, but uh, <laughs> I mean, my discrete workshops are kind of recognizable health and well-being topics. You know, I deal with stress. I deal with physical vitality, energy, habit building in terms of creating positive, healthy habits how we communicate effectively without stress as human beings to to create these kind of positive social bonds. So these are sort of like the Lego blocks that I've always delivered. And now I'm trying to kind of build the whole structure so that I do get more of the management involved. I get more of the team leaders involved. And in order to do that, I'm really looking to work with much smaller companies than I have been in the past. I'm still continuing doing that old work, but I also am now looking to work with scaling companies. So companies of up to 150 people, because I think when they're in that earlier stage of their development, it's a brilliant time. It's such fertile ground to be able to steer the culture of the company and make really good decisions, sort of build the foundation of you know a sustainable future. So I think it's very difficult to retrofit this yeah. when you come into these huge global corporations. Obviously, I don't have that amount of impact. Yeah. I impact the individuals I work with, but not the organization so much as a whole. But I think in young companies, it's such a great time to start asking these questions. You know, what's my culture? What do I need? What does health look like to us? What kind of behaviors do we want to role model? What we see happening on a day-to-day basis? You know, not just what we write about in the company manual. You know, on your first day of a new job, you don't read the company manual and decide what kind of work experience it's going to be. You look around you (laughs) 
and you see the way everyone treats each other, talks to each other, behaves, the kind of habits they have. And you get a very clear idea of the company culture from the get-go. And I think, yeah, it's fertile ground for leaders of these growing companies to get involved in these kind of processes where they reflect and really set the tone going forward. But it's again, it's a difficult sell because there's so much pressure on scaling companies that, you know, when you're a new company and you're just getting funding maybe and you're just, you know, you're rapidly growing, you've got lots of people coming in. There's so much pressure on your time, so many decisions to make, so many priorities to have. It takes a very strong leader to say, yeah, but let's get back to the people. They're what glue everything together. Let's give them some priority here rather than kind of traditional business decisions. So, you know, ideally, this is the work that I want to be filling my agenda with. But yeah, it's something that takes a while to build up momentum with. Yeah. But yeah, that's the way I'd love to take things. But in the meantime, I just love doing the discrete workshops. I love coming in for an hour, an hour and a half with a group, you know, doing a mixture of physical exercise, talking to them about their experience, giving them time and acknowledgement. Like how often at work does someone say, how does this work for you? How do you feel? Yeah. And I think that makes a refreshing change in a work day where you're otherwise busy looking after everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Sounds really wonderful. I think it's a great opportunity and what you were pointing towards, bringing this more sustainable attitude to the work environment, working with smaller groups that have more impact in the whole company and making sure that the connection between roles within the company are also more connected through this common ground of experiential workshop or uh, really sharing all those experiences of movement, of reflection, of rest, of habits change. I think it's a wonderful future ahead. And I really hope you will manage to uh, get more of those clients and more of those projects in. Lucy, I wanted to know if there's something else you wanted to share, anything that we have not touched upon, anything you want to add. One thing, and it's not actually out there yet, but one thing I am planning on doing next is to make up a short course, not to sell directly to businesses, but to actually offer out there in the public space of doing some of my key workshops that I offer normally just exclusively to companies to, you know, online for a group of people, wherever they happen to be in the world to attend. So I'm going to be hopefully getting that out in the next couple of weeks. Oh, nice. So if anyone is interested in trying out some of this stuff and getting some actionable tools that they can take into their own work day and reflect on what they need, then I would encourage people to either follow me on LinkedIn or they can check out the Thrive at Work website and I will be posting more about that very soon. Great. Okay. We can also add that information in the show notes for sure. Great. Thank you so much, Lucy. This was really nice to connect again. Yeah, it's been great. I've had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.